Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9 reads, The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. These words were spoken by a prophet to a king named Asa. A king who, when he relied upon God, prospered. But when he relied upon himself, was defeated by his enemies. You know, I still believe that the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth, looking for those whose hearts are devoted to him. When I was younger, I read a book by R.A. Torrey called Why God Used Dwight Moody. Dwight Moody was an evangelist in the 19th century, and although he came from humble beginnings, he was greatly used by God. And in this book, R.A. Torrey, who was a friend of Moody, gives seven reasons as to why God used Moody. And the very first reason he gave was that Moody was a man who was surrendered to God. And he tells a story about how Henry Varley, a very close friend of Moody, once said to him, Moody, the world is yet to see what God will do with a man who gives himself up wholly to him. And Moody, when he heard those words, was inspired and said, I will be that person. I will give myself daily to God so that he can use me. Now, Tory readily admits that Moody was not a perfect person. He was not a faultless person. But he was a person who was devoted to God. A person who God could use. I wonder, what about you? Are you a person whom God can use? When the eyes of God look down, do they see your heart and say, yes, there is someone whom I can use? Now, I know that we are living at a very interesting moment in human history. The global pandemic has meant that many Christians have been unable to fellowship in regular ways so that they've gone online looking for information on YouTube and Facebook. But unfortunately, YouTube and Facebook are filled with deception. And then over the last three years, it seems like God has allowed the secret lives of many Christian leaders to be exposed. Christian leaders who we looked up to and whose ministries and resources nurtured our faith. And then there's been over the past five years, this moving away in our culture from Christian values and morality. And all of this can make the faith of some feel oppressed. And it's made many weaken in faith. But I still believe what God is looking for, even at this moment, is he's looking for people whose hearts are devoted to him. People whom he can use. So how do you become a person whom God can use? A person when the eyes of the Lord look down, God says, yes, there's someone whom I can use. Well, today we begin a study of the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. It is part of what is called the Torah in Hebrew, the law, or the Pentateuch in Greek. Penta is the word for five, and so it's part of the first five books of the Bible, which were all written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the book of Exodus gets its title in English, uh, from the fact that it records the events of how God's people were delivered out of Egypt, how they made their exodus out of Egypt. It's split basically into two sections. You have the first section, chapters 1 to chapters 18, which records the miraculous deliverance of God's people out of Egypt and their journey to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. 
And then you have the second section of the book, chapters 19 to chapters 40, where God speaks to his people Israel from the mountain, giving them the Ten Commandments, giving them laws as a nation, giving them instructions on how they are to build a tabernacle, a place where God will dwell. And then Exodus concludes in chapter 40 with the presence of God descending on the tabernacle and them leaving Sinai to go to the promised land. Now just a word of caution before we get into our first lesson this morning on becoming a person whom God can use. You know, I think it's important to note that Moses, who we are going to be studying, you see, we're going to be studying these first six chapters as we come up to Easter, because in them you have Moses being prepared as the deliverer. But I think it's important to note that Moses was a once-in-a-generation type of leader. So was Dwight Moody, who I mentioned earlier. And so I'm by no means suggesting that as you apply these lessons that we are going to be learning about how you can become a person God can use, I'm by no means suggesting that you will become like Dwight Moody or Moses. I'm not suggesting that you will become a person about whom Christian biographies are written. If statistics are correct, then most of us, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but most of us here will live lives of relative obscurity only impacting our family, our close friends, and the people around us. Now, the reason I have to give this warning is because there is a large pull on our hearts nowadays to pursue fame, to become social media influencers, you know, to be, have thousands of followers on Facebook and YouTube and TikTok. Some of you are going, what is TikTok? Ask your grandkids about that. So I'm not suggesting that if you apply these lessons, you will somehow get Christian famous and you'll get this large platform for ministry. You know, my daughter, Abby, she follows this um, grandfather on Instagram. And uh, he, uh, he, has, he has hundreds of thousands of followers, right? And he gives these messages every day, these daily updates. And, and he gives this Sunday message every week. And as I said, he has hundreds of thousands of followers. And I was looking at his message and I'm like, I've got way more important things to share than that dude has. Why does he have thousands of followers and I don't? You see, that's up to God. That's in the sovereign hand of God. And so while applying these lessons may not make you, your platform large, you will become, I think, if you follow these lessons, a person whom God can use. You might become a parent whom God uses to impact their children. You might become a teenager who God uses to impact all of the people at your school. So let's look right now at the first lesson this morning in becoming a person whom God can use. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the lesson straight up front, all right? So you can write this down straight away. You can either write it on your phone or if you take notes. Remember this, the smallest pencil is better than the largest memory, all right? And you might need this later, so, so write this down. Here's the first lesson that we're going to learn this morning in becoming a person whom God can use. Here it is. The people who God can use are those who know that although life in Egypt can be hard and oppressive, they still choose to honor and obey God above all, all else. Let me say that again. The people whom God can use are those who know that although life in Egypt can be hard and oppressive, they still choose to honor God and obey God above 
all else. Now, in our lesson today, we are going to see that God uses two of the most unlikely people for his purposes. People who were living at a time in Egypt where things had become hard and oppressive. Have you ever noticed that when the temperature changes, it becomes very uncomfortable? And have you ever noticed that when the season changes, it's hard to remember in that new season what it was like in the previous season? You know, like when you're in the dead of winter and you are rugged up to the hilt and you're sitting in front of the fire still shivering, it's hard to remember that there was summer when you're wearing t-shirts and a short, uh, t-shirt and shorts. Well, in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1, we read that the season had changed for God's people. A new king had come to power in Egypt, a king who did not know Joseph. Now, up to that point, life had been pretty good for God's people in Egypt. Um, In the opening seven verses of chapter 1, which set the context for the book, we read how the brothers of Joseph and their families had traveled to Egypt, 70 persons in total. And we read in verses 6 and 7 that even though Joseph and his brothers and all that generation had died, the people were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, for biblical scholars here this morning, you will notice that this language in this verse mirrors the language of Genesis 1 and verse 28, where God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So we see that God was blessing his people Israel as they lived in Egypt under their hand, under his hand. They were being fruitful and they multiplied and they filled the land. But then, as I said, the season changed. A new king came to power who did not know Joseph. Now, we do not know historically exactly who this king was. Now, some have suggested that it was Ramesses I, because in verse 11, he makes the Israelites build two cities, and one of them was named Ramesses. If you've ever watched the movie The Ten Commandments, who's seen the movie The Ten Commandments by Cecil D. DeMille? Or who here, maybe of a different generation, have seen uh, the Prince of Egypt? Who's seen the Prince of Egypt? In those movies, they call Pharaoh Ramesses. But the text does not tell us what his name actually was. It just simply says there was a new king, a king who didn't know Joseph. In other words, he didn't understand the history of God's people in the land and how they'd been a blessing to the nation of Egypt, how Joseph and his wise leadership had saved Egypt from imminent disaster. You know, this can often happen in a society. Authorities come to power who have no knowledge of God's people, no knowledge of how God's people have been a blessing in whatever society they've been a part of. You know, I think that's what's happening in our culture at the moment. There are authorities, people who are coming into power We have no real understanding of the Christian worldview and the blessing that the Christian worldview has been to Western society. You know, it was Christians who built public hospitals. It was Christians who started public schools for the masses. It was Christians who stood against the slave trade in England. It was Christians who stood against racism in the Deep South. And it is Christians who are at the moment standing up for the rights of the unborn in our state so that the weak are not taken advantage of by the strong. But make no mistake, 
this change of season that happened in Egypt, even though it was political, behind it were spiritual forces. And behind the change of season that we are experiencing in our society are spiritual forces. You see, Paul would say in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And what does he say? Rulers of this dark age. You see, behind political leaders are often sinister, dark forces. You know, Pharaoh appears in the archaeological record with a snake on his crown. And that, that calls to mind Genesis 2, the great serpent, Satan, and how he deceived Adam and Eve. And all throughout the narrative in the book of Exodus, it's not just going to get this. It's not just going to be a battle between Moses and Pharaoh, a political battle. But it's actually a battle between the Lord, Yahweh, and the gods of Egypt. And behind those idols were satanic forces. So behind this change of season were spiritual forces, and this led to the oppression of God's people. In verse 9, we see the king announce, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So the king feels threatened by God's people and influenced by the enemy and out of lust for power. He tries a number of strategies to push God's people down. Strategy number one, he tries the strategy of marginalization. In verse 11, we read how, he, how they set up taskmasters over them to afflict the people of God with heavy burdens and made them build the cities of Python and Ramesses. They did this just because they were Israelites. So they marginalized them. You know, there are many parallels between how Pharaoh dealt with the Israelites in Egypt and how Hitler dealt with the Jews in Germany. I guess Satan has no new strategies. When the Nazis came to power in Germany, the first thing that they did was they sought to marginalize the Jews by making them wear a Star of David on their clothing and by making them put a Star of David in their stores, separating them out from the rest of society. But we read in verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Marginalization doesn't seem to work. The more you marginalize a people, the more they tend to become stronger in their beliefs and their convictions. So then they try a strategy. Then he tries a strategy of outright oppression. In verse 13, we read that they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You know, in Nazi Germany, when marginalization did not work, they then rounded up the Jews and made them live in walled-off sections of the city and in concentration camps. They made them work in ammunition factories, in other words, they made them live as slaves. But then that, when that didn't work, we see uh, Pharaoh's final strategy, that of elimination. The king in verses 15 and 16, as we're going to look in a few moments, he issues an edict that every son born to a Hebrew woman be killed. What you have to do at this moment is remove from your mind the Disney cartoon. This is real. This was horrific. 
Pharaoh probably thought, this is the ultimate way that I can get sh make sure that this people group will not rise against me. I will kill all the boys, thereby eliminating the men who will grow up, who may grow up and become an army. You know, in Nazi Germany, the final strategy of Hitler was similar. It was called the final solution, where the Jews were rounded up, they were sent to gas chambers, and over one million Jews were sadly eliminated. You know, Jesus said that the thief, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And when the forces of darkness are given control in a society, that's exactly what happens. God's people are marginalized. Then they're oppressed. And then Satan tries to eliminate them. Now, I am not suggesting that things are that bad for us in Australia. But what I am suggesting is we shouldn't be so ignorant to think that it could not happen again. You know, when the season changes and people come to power who do not know God and his ways, who are influenced by the enemy, and out of their lust for power, what can easily happen is it can lead to marginalization, oppression, and elimination. An interesting question for you all to ponder this morning is where do you think we're at? Marginalization? Oppression? Elimination? So life in Egypt had become bitter and oppressive for God's people. But it was in the midst of the darkness, as it always is, where we see that God uses two unlikely people to shine his light for his purposes. In verse 15 we read, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puha, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now remember, Pharaoh's word was law. To disobey Pharaoh would be to break the law. And to break the law would certainly mean imprisonment, if not death. So what were these Hebrew midwives going to do? Would they follow what the king had said and kill the babies? Or would they follow their conscience and follow God? Well, in verse 17, we read this. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. In other words, these Hebrew midwives honored God above Pharaoh. Now, as I said, these are unlikely heroes. I mean, Pharaoh was killing all the boys because he feared that they would become men and rise up against him as a mighty army. But here Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the greatest power of the time, is being undermined by two women, two Hebrew midwives. I mean, this is so much like God, to take the most unlikely people, people who the world would not choose, people who the world wouldn't think are important and a threat and use them for his purposes. I mean, it's so interesting. Every time I see women in the Bible doing great things, I'm going to point it out for our ladies. So you can see that the Bible is about women. You know, it's interesting in the next chapter, it will be another woman, Pharaoh's own daughter, living in his own house, <laughs> who will undermine his plan to kill all the sons of Israel by taking the baby Moses into his very own palace. Isn't that amazing? 
And so in verse 18, we read that in response, the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. I mean, he was angry. He was furious. That disobeyed the most powerful man in all of Egypt. Well, the midwives said to Pharaoh, it is because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, many people have thought, and I think wrongly, that the Hebrew midwives were lying to Pharaoh. And get this, because, and many people think that because God commends them for their actions, many people think that God is therefore okay with lying in certain circumstances. Like, for example, if an armed gunman came to your home and asked if you had any children, God would be okay with you, they say, with, with you saying no, so that your children could remain hiding safely from the gunman. What do you think? What do you think? Is God okay with lies if they are used for noble purposes? Well, I don't think that this is what the Hebrew midwives are doing. Jesus once said to his 12 disciples these words. They're going to come up on the screen. He said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye, therefore, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In other words, Jesus was saying, in this world, we are going to face enemies, ruthless enemies, like wolves who are going to seek to devour us. And so we need to be wise in the way that we respond to them. We need to be like serpents. Serpents were considered in the ancient world to be clever. Now, Jesus is not saying we need to be like the great serpent, Satan. He's just using a simple comparison. We need to be like serpents, clever in the way that we respond to our enemies. But also, Jesus said, we need to be as innocent as doves. So I don't think these Hebrew midwives were lying. They were stating a truth. Hebrew women were not like Egyptian women. They would give birth quickly. They are not some pampered, you know, we need the birthing suite and the aroma gels and, you know, the music playing and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Am I getting myself in trouble, ladies? I don't mean to. <laughs> they were not like that. They just had the babies and got back to work. That's what the Hebrew women were like. And so what these midwives were doing is that they were responding to Pharaoh wisely, striking a balance between sharing too much information, which would get them in trouble, and being untruthful, which would dishonor God. Do you see that? You know, increasingly, we have to be like these Hebrew midwives. The company says that one particular day is going to be Purple Day. A day where everyone in the company is instructed to wear purple to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community. Now, as a Christian, you love everyone, even people who are different from you. You love, for example, your gay work colleague who sits next to you. At, sits next to you. But also, as a Bible-believing Christian, you have certain beliefs and ideals about sexuality. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do when that purple day rocks around? If you stand up and not wear purple and tell the people the exact reason why you're not wearing purple in today's cancel culture, you might be canceled and lose your job, a job which provides for your family, a job where you've been a witness for Christ for many years. On the other hand, if you compromise and wear purple, you know that you'll be violating your conscience before God and not being salt and light in the workplace. So what are you going to do? Well, this is where I think that Jesus' words and the example of these Hebrew midwives is very instructive. Be wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove. Before God, make sure you do the right thing. 
But be wise in what you say and how you say it so you don't get in unnecessary legal trouble. Now, you still may be cancelled. That may happen to you. As I said, we're living in a society now where, you exp- where if you express a different opinion to the popular one, you'll either be cancelled or sent for tolerance training. But if that happens to you, rejoice over the fact that you've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. But still, I think it's important that you strike a balance between being wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, especially in today's culture in which we now live. But here is the assurance that we can have. Look down in verse 20. Because these Hebrew midwives honored God above all else, we read in verse 20, God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. You know, when you honor God, you can be assured that God will honor you. It may not be in this lifetime, but he definitely will honor you. God honors those who honor him. So the people who God uses are those who know that although life in Egypt is hard and oppressive, they still choose to honor God above all else. Life was bitter and oppressive for Shifra and Puah. They could have easily given in to the pressure that Pharaoh was putting upon them. But they chose to honor God above all else. But let me ask you a question. Why did they honor God above all else? Why did they honor his word above the word of Pharaoh? Well, twice in this text, it says they did this because they feared God. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. Verse 21, it says, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. You know, even in the darkest moments, God still has a remnant of his people. God still has his people, those people who fear him. You know, you, never, you don't need a big church to make a difference. God, God's not into big numbers all the time. He just needs a few, a couple people who fear him. I find this very, very encouraging. It had been 400 years, 400 years since that generation had died. And yet at least some people still feared God. They still trusted God and feared God and feared the Lord. These Hebrew midwives, they feared the Lord. So let me ask you, are you a person who fears God? Would it be written about you that you fear God like it was written of Shifra and Puha? Now you might say, Timon, should we be afraid of God? I thought the Bible says that God's perfect love casts out all fear. Well, there are two types of fear. The first type of fear is the fear that comes on you when your life is under threat. Let's say um, I I was to tell you that Kim Jong-un had just pressed the button and a nuclear bomb was headed for Adelaide and was going to hit in 15 minutes. Would you be afraid? I I would be afraid, okay? Let me just give you permission. I would be afraid. Be very afraid, obviously. Now, this type of fear is not a bad thing as there are things in life that we should be afraid of. And that fear helps us to run from impending danger. Like, the, uh, psychologists tell us that when we encounter fear, there is a fight-or-flight response. And whenever anyone becomes a Christian, it is because that type of fear has gripped their heart. 
You see, Hebrews 10 verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, the greatest impending danger that will come upon all of us is not a nuclear explosion, but it is the judgment of God. As the writer of Hebrews says, it is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So whenever anyone becomes a Christian, it's because that reality of judgment has hit them, and they have run to the only place of shelter. Let me give you another illustration. Electricity is a very powerful force, is it not? Now, do we have any electricians in the building this morning? Any electricians here this morning? Ah, oh, you're an electrician. I was hoping no one would be here so that they couldn't fact check me. But anyway, <laughs> let me continue on. You know, uh, electricity can be lethal if you come into direct contact with it. Which is why when there's an electrical storm, you want to take cover. You don't want to be out in the open because you might get struck by lightning and die. But this same force that can kill you, electricity, can also be used to light and heat your home. And I bet you don't even think about that fact when you turn on the light, that behind that switch is 240 volts surging through the wires. Now, why don't you think about it? Well, between you and the electricity is insulation. And the insulation is protecting you from being electrocuted. It is standing between you and the electricity protecting you from its power. You know, when you become a Christian, you no longer have to fear the judgment of God. Because in the same way, there is something standing between you and God's wrath. Something that's insulating you from being destroyed. And that is the cross of Jesus. And so if you're a Christian this morning, you don't have to fear God's judgment anymore. Because God's perfect love demonstrated on the cross has cast out all fear. But there is another type of fear that the Bible speaks about, and that is reverent awe that comes upon your soul when you think about or you encounter greatness. Just think about it for a second. It is pretty awesome to think that behind a switch is 240 volts surging through these wires that if you were to touch would fry you immediately. Now that fear, you don't have a fear of that anymore of being destroyed. But you just have reverent awe. Reverent awe. And you know, when a person meets the holy God and they repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus, that fear of judgment moves to admiration and awe that one so great would send his son to die for them. So although Christians no longer fear God in the sense that they fear coming under his wrath, they should continue to fear God in the sense that they are in awe of his greatness. Um, in fact, John Murray once said, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. Do you know there are only two people in the Bible who are given the privilege of being called the friends of God? Moses and Abraham. And do you know what they had in common? They both feared God. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 25, verse 14. It says, the secrets of the Lord is with those who fear him. God reveals his secrets to those who fear him. The Bible also says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is because the beginning place to an intimate relationship with God is fear of God. 
Now, I want to show you something up on the screen for a moment. So just look at this. I was thinking about this this morning. Listen to this statement. It will seem contradictory, but let me explain it to you. You'll never have an intimate relationship with God if you fear Him, but you'll never have an intimate relationship with God unless you fear Him. So you'll never have an intimate relationship with God if you continue to fear His wrath and judgment. What you need to do is actually put your conscience under the cross of Christ. You don't have to work for His love and acceptance. It's paid for in full by Jesus. God has moved from being your judge. He is now your father if you've repented of your sin and put your faith in the blood of Jesus. But let me tell you something. You'll never grow in intimacy with God unless you continue to fear him. As Moses, as the Lord said to Moses in Leviticus 10 verse 3, listen to this. He says, I must be regarded. This is the Lord speaking. I must be regarded as holy by those who draw near. And I will be glorified by all people. If you want to draw near to God, you need to respect and recognize who God actually is. You know, if there is distance between you and God this morning, if there is a distance in your relationship with God this morning, it's not a problem with God. God says in James 4, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Maybe if there is a distance in your relationship with God today, it's because God has become all too familiar. You just sing the songs. You come to church. You do the deal. You're all too familiar with God. You aren't realizing how awesome, powerful, mighty He is. A friend of mine's an electrician. He got electrocuted. Almost killed him. Almost killed him. He's burnt head to toe. You know why he got burnt head to toe? Because he became all too familiar. All too familiar with the electricity. Didn't appropriately fear what he was actually doing. The sons of Aaron offered strange fire to God. Didn't realize. Didn't realize were consumed. That fire came out of the altar and consumed them. Obviously, we're in the New Covenant. We're in the New Covenant. But I seem to remember something happening in Acts, Acts chapter 5. Do you remember that, that, that event that happened in Acts chapter 5 where these two tithers came in and lied about their tithing that they put in front of the apostles? And what happened to them in the New Covenant? They fell down dead. And it caused the whole church to fear. Great fear, it says, seized the whole church. See, so we're dealing with a holy God here this morning. A real God, a living God here this morning. And if you want to grow in intimacy with God, yeah, you won't grow in intimacy with God if you fear God. You need to put your conscience under the blood of Jesus, but un you won't grow unless you fear God. And so how do you cultivate the fear of God? How do you cultivate the fear of God in your life? Well, let me give you some applications to close this message. First, to cultivate the fear of God, we need to ask God to stimulate in us growth in the fear of the Lord. David prayed in Psalm 86 and verse 11. He said, Lord, give me an undivided heart. 
that I might fear your name. An undivided heart is a heart that that is of singular purpose. And this is what David prayed for because he knew the tendency of his heart was to be divided. Do you know the tendency of your heart? You know, it's common to find people nowadays who are driven in their pursuit of a goal and they focus their whole lives around that goal. Last year, I watched a documentary on um, Leeds United, this soccer team, and how the whole of the organization was focused on getting back to the Premier League. And it was inspiring to watch their diligence and focus. But while it's not uncommon to find people who are driven and focused on the pursuit of a goal, you know, it's rare to find a Christian with an undivided heart. We are constantly pulled by the subtleties of the world, by the desires of our sinful nature. We, we often find ourselves pursuing other things rather than knowing Christ. You know, if you want to, you want to develop the fear of the Lord, you need to pray that prayer, Lord, give me an undivided heart. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Fearing God, says, this is where the fear of God begins. The Holy Spirit is the energizer of all spiritual motion in our lives. Without his work in our hearts, we cannot work. It will not begin unless we get on our knees and ask God the Holy Spirit to unite our hearts to fear his name. Second, after prayer, the next ingredient for growth in fearing God is regular, consistent exposure of our hearts and minds to the word of God. In Deuteronomy 4.10, the Lord says these words to Moses. He says, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to what? Revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. It's so important to come to church, to gather with other believers, to open the word yourself. Because when you open the word, God speaks to you and you see who he is and you learn to fear him. But finally, along with prayer and exposure to God's word, if we want to cultivate our fear of God, we also need to cultivate a deeper understanding of who God is. We need to move from the shallow end in our understanding of God to the deep end. We need a deeper theology. Once again, Jerry Bridges writes that fear of God has three aspects. You may want to write this down. Respect, admiration, and amazement. Respect for his infinite worth, admiration of his glorious attributes, and amazement at his infinite love. Respect admiration, and amazement. And the only way to grow respect, admiration, and amazement is to cultivate a deeper theology. Now, I know for some of you that word theology just frightens you, but it simply means, comes from the word theos means God, ology means the study of. So as you study the word and study God, study who he is, his attributes, you get a deeper, deeper fear of him. I'll never forget um, sitting in my first theology class at Dallas Seminary with Dr. Scott Harrell, as he explained, and I'd never understood this before, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God eternally exists as three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each are fully God, but there is one God. And as I heard him explain the doctrine of the Trinity, my heart was just gripped with wonder at this God who is just way beyond my comprehension. So the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to strengthen the hearts of those who are devoted to him, people whom he can use. 
Let me ask you again, are you a person who he can use? We've learned today that the people that God can use are not necessarily the most talented or gifted, but they are people who will honor him above all else. And the reason that they honor him above all else is that they fear him. Who he is is more weighty in their eyes than who other people are. And so they'll obey him no matter the cost. And they'll fear him. Now, like a good TV series that you binge watch on Netflix, no one here probably does that, but like a good TV series that you binge watch on Netflix, um, each chapter leading up to chapter 6 ends with a cliffhanger. And it leaves making us want more. And at the end of chapter 1 in verse 22, we see a cliffhanger. So look in your Bibles or look up on the screen. It says, Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, Every son that is born to Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So after Pharaoh could not get the Hebrew midwives to do his dirty work, he commands the people to do it. So chapter 1 ends on a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? What's going to happen is, are all the kids going to be killed? How is God going to deliver his people? Well, here's the thing. You're going to have to come back next week as we study chapter 2 to find out what happens next in the story. But maybe right this morning, God has been speaking to you because your heart is cold to the Lord. Let me say it again. It's not God that's gone anywhere. He promises, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Maybe the Lord has just become all too familiar to you. And you need to pray that prayer of David, Lord, unite my heart so that I can fear your name. In fact, why don't we all stand together and why don't we pray that prayer as a church family together? You know, numbers don't matter to God, as I said. He's just looking for people who fear him. And he could take two unlikely people and use them for great purposes. I want to be part of a church community that says, Lord, we want to be used by you. Because we fear you. We're so in awe of your amazing love. We were sinful, we could not save ourselves, and Jesus, you stepped in and you took the wrath that we deserved. You stood in the gap between us and the wrath of God, and we are so thankful, Lord. And I want to be part of a church community where every Sunday we regard him as holy. I must be regarded as holy by those who draw near. So let's pray this prayer together. It's a simple prayer. Lord, unite my heart that I may fear your name. Let's pray together. Lord, unite our hearts that we might fear your name. Let's just pray it one more time. Lord, unite our hearts that we might fear your name. Amen.